while we're on the subject of danger, let me tell you this one. So in my late teenage years and my early 20s, I was obsessed with this TV show called Top Gear. Now for the uninitiated, or if you've been living under a rock for the past couple of decades, Top Gear is a show about cars. And also, it's not a show about cars. It's about the three hosts who have great interpersonal chemistry, who have a great sense of humor, keep falling over, and somehow cars fit into the picture in their grand adventures across the world. I was obsessed with the show to the point that I think still every factor of my, every, every part of my personality has been touched by that show in some way. My, my inner feelings about cars kind of exploded when I started watching that show. And I, that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to be a precision driver. But of course, there's nobody to teach you how to be a, pre a precision driver, so you have to teach yourself. Now, what you normally need under those circumstances are controlled roads or like a track. But where I was in the mountains in the north, not a lot of great options there. You kind of have to do with what you what you have around you. And what I had around me were my friends. And bits of roads that I knew nobody was using. How did I know that nobody was using them? Because I lived right across these patches of roads where I could see a few adjoining villages back in my university days and basically sit there all day and observe the road. And you could tell that there wasn't a lot of traffic because enough of it was had a little bit of dust on it that you could see the moment a car came, you could you could get alerted very quickly and you, you'd also hear it. It's the beauty of being in the mountains. You see everything. And I was obsessed with some particular roads that I found gorgeous. It's a petrolhead thing. What I would normally do under most circumstances is that I would have a couple of friends with me on my adventure. If they weren't petrolheads, no problem, but they would still be interested in helping me out, and I'm forever grateful to them for that. They probably saved my life more times than I can count. So I'd have one group of friends at the beginning of that patch of road and another group of friends at the ending, about as far as I felt comfortable driving. After, after all, there's only so much gas in the world, right? I would have those friends under those positions. They would be on, uh, they would be on calls. I would set the phone on loudspeaker and keep it somewhere in the car that I could hear them. And off I would go. Of course, I would still keep paying attention to clouds of dust rising up when a car starts car starts to move um, further in the distance, coming in the direction that I was driving and stuff like that. And that's how I practiced driving, precision driving in the mountains. Now, what is precision driving? It's just having a great amount of control over your car understanding the balance of car, understanding wheel placement very well, understanding the limits of your car, understanding how you can push them, so on and so forth. As I said, I normally do this in controlled circumstances. One time I found myself in a, in a village in the mountains that I haven't visited terribly often, maybe once or twice in my life. I barely knew the roads, barely knew the villages, but it was so beautiful. You have to take my word on how beautiful it was. Just the deepest greens. The smell of pine wood. On the day in question, it had rained the night before. It was about 11 o'clock in the morning when I was there. And I think it had been drizzling up until like 9 a.m. or something. The road was wet, but not too wet. There weren't puddles, 
but also you could just see and observe the wetness on the road. Now, there is a technique called the Scandinavian flick. Now, what that means is as you're driving along, you intentionally disrupt the balance of your car and you, you take control of it. What that, what that involves you doing is you shake this, the, the steering wheel, you give it a yank, and while the car's balance shifts one way, you yank it the other. And that way, your the balance of your car is basically out of control. And then you have to, of course, you have to regain it. It would be a dumb thing to leave the car in that state, especially around corners. And that's what I wanted to do that day. It was this beautiful corner. Now, one of the advantages of being in the mountains is that you can, if you're paying enough attention, if you have enough foresight, of course, you can't control all the variables, but you can generally speaking, have a clear picture of how many cars are on the road, how far apart they are, and in how much time you can expect to see incoming traffic. Of course, you can also get this wrong because there are parts of the mountain that you can't see and it could be that somebody's just parked their car around the part that you cannot see and then just as you're trying to do some dumb shit that you've learned how to do on the internet or read about or in a blog or something at that point, I don't think even YouTube existed back then. That was a very real danger. I'll grant you that. But I found a corner that I really liked and I drove a couple of times up and down, um, going downhill and then uphill. It's not a not a particularly sharp angle, but it's just a very gentle downhill, like six or seven kilometers or something. And I, the patch that I was interested in was something like 400, 500 meters. One sharp but beautiful corner. The final time for that day, I drove up the mountain and... Then I turned my car around and it was time. The temperature was something like 13, 14, 15 degrees Celsius, something in the nearabouts. Grip on the road was just right. My tire pressure was fine. My engine was fine. Everything was running the way it should run. In times like these, if you're doing something as dumb as that, You really need confidence. You don't need overconfidence because that'll get you killed. You definitely don't need underconfidence because that will get you killed and that will also likely get a bunch of other people killed. And I was confident that all the variables that I could control were in control. I was as awake as I've ever been. And then it was time. I hit the gas, yanked the steering, Car went out of control ever so slightly in one direction. I yanked it hard again. At this point, the car is light on its feet. I could feel the entire mass of the car move under my ass. In fact, you could could give me a sharpened pencil and I could place the center of gravity of the car in three-dimensional space exactly where it was. And I could make the car rotate around that point. I think the whole thing lasted like a second and a half, two seconds. Best moments of my life. The corner came. I kicked the ass end of the car outside. Car started to slide. Because it's wet, it didn't make that rubber on dry road skidding sound. It just made this paper-like sound. 
Like when you're, when you're cutting paper and it just sounds so crumbly and nice. It sounded like texture. If that makes sense. The, the angle of the card, the back end was so far out. I was basically carving a circle. I made the corner. At, at the highest angle of the car, the drift angle was so high that for a second I thought that I had lost it because I had never, never pushed a car, any car that much. Now, this was a very basic front engine, front wheel drive, run of the mill hatchback. No electronic aids, no safety mechanisms, pure mechanics. And I cannot describe the feeling of how it felt when I, when I did that. And when the corner was done, that feeling of, holy shit, I got to get, get the car back in line. Because then, of course, there's the next corner. You're still on the road. The realities are, it doesn't matter how perfect what you've just done was, you still have to drive, otherwise you die. What happens in circumstances like that is you, you have to give opposite lock. So your car is looking one way and you have to steer in the other way to get it kind of back into line. And of course, this is the point where if you fuck up, you die. And I'm, I maintain confidence somehow and don't overcorrect. I'm just in the right space that I, I bring the car back so smoothly. It corrects in the most beautiful way. And like two seconds after the whole ordeal started, I'm a normal car on the road again. At this point, my heart is beating out of my goddamn chest. It's like... And I'm like, holy shit. I can't believe I just did that. I was so excited. I parked the car on the side of the road, walked back to the, to the place where I'd just done what I did and looked at the mark that my car had made. So because it's still wet, it, it did leave a little bit of an imprint. If it was dry, it would have probably left some rubber there. It was just a faint mark of just a patch where the water had been displaced, essentially. And I could see that and I recognized the actual danger I was in. Because the, the edge of the patch that my tire drew, so this is, that was a right-handed curve going downhill. The mark that my wheel had left was my rear left wheel. I'm driving a right-hand drive car. And it's carved out a beautiful path which is just one centimeter from the edge of the road. And below it is like 1,200 meters of sheer drop. And I'm thinking to myself, holy shit, what if I had gotten that part wrong? Fast forward maybe a decade, 11 years, and I am in Dornbern in Austria. This beautiful, quaint little village town, whatever you might want to call it, with an airstrip. So it's in the valley, beautiful Alps on the side, Lake Constance on, on one side, and that's where I am because I wanted to go skydiving on my birthday. Now, up until the moment I, I hit buy now on the coupon for the for the jump, I had a little bit of fear. This was always, this wasn't like many people have skydiving in their bucket lists. I didn't have anything like that. Of course, this was 
interesting. I had seen some of my friends had done it. And this was always something that I was curious about, but not really with any kind of specific interest. Oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm so excited. That wasn't me. I did the math in my head and I'm like, okay, how many accidents are there really when you're doing skydiving? Because if the number is more than one in a thousand, no more skydiving in the world. They would close all the places down. And I knew I was safe. One in 10,000, maybe? One in 20,000? Something goes wrong. A person dies, maybe one in 25,000 events. Maybe one person dies. And I thought, I could live with those odds. That's not, that's not too bad. I think I could, I could take the risk. And of course, that's based on all the other dumb shit that I've done in my life. And then, then the day comes. I get on this dinky little plane. <laughs> I make fun of it now, but it was, it's a powerful machine. I loved being around it when it was just getting fired up. It was so loud. And you'd think the plane is a bit quieter on the inside because, because of sound insulation or whatever. Absolutely not. Because this is a special activities plane, they've removed the door of the, the damn thing. And instead, it's just like this curtain thingy. Super flimsy stuff. But of course, it's what you need if you want to jump out of it. You don't want any idiots hitting their heads on the door or something and passing out and then falling over somebody's house, like in Harold and Kumar. I begin talking to my instructor on the ground. This is the person, this is a tandem flight, obviously, as this is my first. Having a great conversation with him, just getting to know, getting the safety brief. He's explaining to me what the risks are and how I, how I must behave removing all the metal objects, rings, you know, any spiky shoes or whatever. Anything that is a liable danger has to be removed at this point. Fair enough. And then it was time to get on the plane. We got on the plane, starts to take off. It's fun. I like it. I'm having a good time. A couple of minutes later, my tandem partner pats me on my shoulder and says, Hey man, are you having a good time? Are you, are you excited? Are you, are you looking forward to it? I'm like, yeah, man, absolutely. It's... I'm, I'm quite excited. Let's see. And, and then I'm, I begin observing Lake Constance, fucking beautiful as ever. It was a little bit of a misty day, but how often are you in the Alps around, around Lake Constance with these beautiful cliff-like mountains, Austria on one side, Switzerland on one side, Germany on another. It's fucking, it's nuts. Some seconds later, he pats me on the shoulder again. Hey, man, are you, are you having a good time? You you excited? Are you happy? And then he starts focusing on the happy a little bit. And I'm like, yeah, man, I'm pretty happy. Some minutes pass by and uh, he asks me that question again. And I'm like, at this point, I, I can kind of see what's going on. And I'm like, dude, I'm happy. I'm excited. And I just realized, like, he prompts me to smile more. And to, he says, hey, you should smile more. You should be more excited. You should... We're going to have a good time. And I was like, dude, I'm 100% on board. Don't worry about me at all. I'm chill. I'm totally relaxed. And let's do this. So in retrospect, what probably happened was he saw me just being not the slightest bit overwhelmed, which is not maybe not the appropriate response for somebody who's going up any altitude in a dinky plane with a parachute strapped to that guy's back. Maybe that's not the appropriate response, but that was my response because of all the dumb shit that I've done in the past. So I was like, hey, I've done the math and I don't need to worry about it anymore. So I wasn't worried. And maybe that's what disconcerted him a little bit. But I convinced him. I was like, dude, everything's fine. No stress whatsoever. I'm having a good time and let's do this. And up until that point, I was totally fine. 
everything was fine, no anxiety, no no stress. Couldn't be more relaxed. I was oddly relaxed. <laughs> and then it came time to for people to start jumping. I was like number six in line. There were so many other people who also had to jump first. And seeing them do it, that was where the excitement of it began. I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm doing something cool now. Let's fucking do this shit. First person jumps out, second person jumps out, and eventually enough of them jump out that it's now my turn. Of course, in, in this assisted skydiving thingy, I'm on the front side, right? So I have to exit the plane a little bit before him. But before you exit, before you take the leap, he's going to do one final check. And during that time, you're supposed to hang out on the edge of the edge of the, the plane. And you're supposed to sit with your legs wrapped around the plane. Now, the whole idea is that you, you also have to fall like a banana where you have your arms are waving up and your legs are, are also waving up. So you just carve a hole through the air when you fall. So that way there's no buffeting or anything. You fall down in a stable way and everything's controlled. Of course, you wouldn't want any flapping around. Otherwise, you could hit your instructor in the head. That guy passes out and then not the way you want to end in skydiving, right? And as I have my legs wrapped around the plane, I begin to see the cities that were massive seconds ago, now reduced to the size of like what you'd expect farm property to be. It's an entire village. It's time to jump. Before I know it, he says, go, go. And then I jump and it's, it's so terrifying. I don't want to color my memory any further, so I'm just going to read exactly what I wrote down on the day. Oddly enough, I felt no anxiety or fear seeing six or seven other jumpers take the plunge, and as my time neared, I was hanging on the edge of the plane, looking down into what looked like Google Earth. It did cross my mind how fucking insane it is that it is this guy's job to grab a random person from anywhere in the world and jump off a fucking plane with him. The moment came, I jumped with my tandem partner, and I have to say, the first five to seven seconds were fucking weird. Turbulence moving about like the universe was imploding into the size of a closed fist. Not pleasant at all for me. Like seasickness multiplied by a thousand. Like all the unpleasant bits of a roller coaster ride, but much worse. And then miraculously to me, my body adapted to these new rules and just about managed to be aware of my surroundings. It was just over a minute's worth of freefall, but in my memory, time is condensed into fleeting binary moments, terrified in one and overjoyed in the other. I do remember yelling, fuck, yeah, whoa, and about a million other expletives that would probably get me kicked off of most social media platforms. And then parachute time. A totally new universe engulfed me, different in every way from the previous, with its own laws and customs. It was great to slow down. My mind had time to appreciate consciousness this time. And then we steered hard towards the landing zone, and then the seasickness returned. And it took much longer to get it under control again. My tandem partner handed me the control over our parachute and it was totally exhilarating to experience this form of moving about in space. It felt so organic in some way, but oddly disconnected at the same time, like power steering versus manual steering. I couldn't get any feeling of what was going on with the parachute. Needless to say, I'm not a natural at it. I don't really know what I was expecting, but I somehow still got used to it. So that was my experience. I have to say, I think it's called something like humanflights.de. It's a German, German company that runs this. The instructor was called Joey. 
And I had a fucking blast, man. And I cannot recommend anything as much as I can recommend skydiving, especially if you're afraid of heights. Definitely fucking go for it. And do dangerous shit, man, because it was pretty fucking boring otherwise. <laughs>